In today's episode, I collaborate with Sarah Starr to explore communication and the ongoing process of understanding the meaning, intent, and impact our words carry. Sarah works for Pyramid Communications, a strategy and communications firm that works with not-for-profit organizations, offering services like branding, campaign strategy, and website development. In her role, Sarah is working to create effective messaging and materials for her clients while also wanting to challenge savior narratives that exclude the voices of the communities these organizations are aiming to serve. Sarah shares the reflections and aha moments she has had both personally and professionally. She speaks about the importance of listening to the communities to which we don't belong and adapting our language as we gain new information and a broader perspective. The process for this is, oftentimes, getting it wrong and being open and willing to learn from that so we can, as Sarah puts it, meet people where they are with language. So first of all, thank you so much for making time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable. Thank you for inviting me. This show evolves all the time. And so I came up with a really, what I thought was a good opening question after speaking to a producer for On Being, who's like, come up with a question where you really talk to people about their background because it puts them at ease. And so I came up with this thing of like, okay, when did you move into, or what was some experience, formative experiences for you that brought you into the work that you're doing? And then I phrase it as like the move from I am suffering to there is suffering. And for a while that worked really well, but I'm finding it's not working. So with you, I'm going to be experimenting and playing around. So <laughs> So what I'd love is if you could just begin by talking a little bit about your experience growing up and anything in particular that gave you a sense of greater social awareness. Well, I grew up in a very liberal hippie town that was all about social justice and multiculturalism and all those uh, buzzwords. And so, you know, there was always an emphasis and, you know, social capital around being aware and involved and volunteering. But of course, that doesn't mean that it was some idyllic place. (laughs) It was still a very segregated place. In the cafeteria in high school, people sat according to race largely, and um, it was not very integrated. And so I think I was sort of aware early on of inequality in a more global sense, but not as something that was happening here mm. with us and in my classroom. So I think that that is a shift that happened slowly over time to realize this is is exactly where I am. And because we have good intentions doesn't mean we're devoid of racism or other problems. So um, mm-hmm. that was a hard realization for me. I remember um, I grew up in the the Boston area and I went away for college. And at some point somebody said something, oh, you know, Boston is such a historically racist city. And I remember getting so upset and defensive of, you know, my my hometown um, that I thought of as this liberal blue hamlet. (laughs) And realizing that, of course, that person was right. And Boston has an incredibly racist history and blue doesn't mean not racist. Yeah. So what was it? Was it largely in college that you started to kind of unlearn that idea of like, oh, we, you know, I'm from a liberal town. We're liberal. Yeah. um, You know, I came into college with all sorts of biases and I went to school in St. Louis, Missouri, um, in the Midwest. And there were really people from all over 
And not only did I sort of begin to unlearn what I thought about liberal East Coast, but realizing that I had my own biases about other people from other parts of the country and being confronted with that. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's any moment. It's it's a continual process of learning and unlearning and confronting the biases that exist everywhere and ones that you don't notice. And, you know, you think, you think something's all good. And that's, I mean, it's very true in um, the space I work in now in the nonprofit sector where everyone's really committed to social justice. And sometimes they think that's the same thing as racial equity. And it's, it's not. And uh, nonprofits also have a lot of historical racism. And I read a statistic that, uh, 80% of nonprofit leadership is white. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also it's like, uh, nonprofits are actually, there's like a lot of women in nonprofits, but often still not in leadership roles. (laughs) Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So today we're going to have a conversation about communication in particular and Mm -hmm. not just professionally, but also personally. And so the impact that that has on the world around us and also on our own ways of thinking. So could you just talk a little bit about points when you became aware of the impact of language, certain experiences or moments when you became aware of the impact that language has on how you think and behave and what you believe, sort of like dig into that a little bit. One thing that I've noticed is that fairly frequently um, I'll use a word and either be told by somebody or sort of realize in using that word where that word actually comes from. These words get so ingrained into how we speak that we we forget the origin. Um, i trying to think of a good example. A small one, um, not a small one, but uh, one I, I don't use very often, but um, I we were talking about the term ham it up, which feels like a pretty innocuous term, but actually comes from uh, the roots of uh, minstrelry. And um, mm. ham was a character in blackface and doing minstrelry. And that is like where we get that term from. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The impact of that word might not be great because most people don't know that, but where we get language from really speaks to these biases that are so ingrained in the way we speak and communicate. I've heard a, you know, big word in our collective culture these days is uh, people talking about their spirit animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for, you know, a lot of native people who have cultures in which spirit animal is a part of their religious belief, hearing people casually throw around like, oh my God, look at that a- adorable penguin falling down. Like, that's so my spirit animal. Um, <laughs> oh, God. And, uh, you know, people do this with out bad intention um what they mean is like that thing i re- i relate to that thing but in stealing those words from other cultures we're really taking something from them and a lot of times you don't really see or notice the direct impact of using words like that but um sometimes you do and it's very striking i once referred to a friend of mine as my guru on something mm. and I, I stopped and I was like, can I, is that offensive? And he said, well, it is a priest in my religion. 
doesn't really apply here. And I was so embarrassed, but, um, you know, had I been speaking to someone else, I might not have even thought twice about that. Right. Yeah. That is so interesting. I was just, as you were speaking, I was thinking of two different examples is that, I don't know if you watch Queer Eye. I've, I've seen a bunch of them. I call Queer Eye a problematic fave. <laughs> <laughs> I would say my, the biggest thing I'm aware of in Queer Eye is how classist it is often. <laughs> They're like, what? How come you have a used couch you just pulled off of the, like, out of the dump? I'm like, maybe because they couldn't afford, do you know how expensive a couch is? <laughs> like, right. But they did, the, one of the last episodes I watched, they end with, what's your spirit animal? And all of them answer. And one of them's like, mine's like an adorable corgi puppy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just awkward, right? <laughs> oh no! And then the guru thing's interesting because, like, um, I, this is something I'm really reckoning with at the moment. Because a white practitioner of Buddhist traditions that come from Tibet, largely, that's the the influence is um, Tibetan influenced Buddhism is is sort of the track that I have ended up on within North America. And now I've recently started to practice with the Zen community. And yeah, it's this whole question of guru that comes up within Tibetan Buddhism and then also just cultural appropriation that comes up in yeah. Zen traditions. They're like, uh, how much of this is just performing Japanese-ness and not actually Buddhism? Right. So it is. It's interesting to navigate and notice and kind of have those questions. And you mentioned intention, and I want to come back to that. But before <laughs> I do, uh, I would love if you've got some, I feel like this is a really useful thing to share embarrassing stories of learning. Because <laughs> I think within social justice movements, there is a lot of perfectionism that kind of ends up coming through from being raised in very capitalist societies and about performing well and getting it right and getting the language right. And the point is, like you said, it's, it's ongoing, right? You're saying noticing these things, noticing these differences, noticing these blind spots. There wasn't like a single point. It's just sort of like, as you have grown up, you started to notice things and had different experiences where you're like, oh, I get to learn here. And I feel like naming those embarrassing stories and sharing them is a really powerful way to show others and model to others how the learning process works. So like my example is that I felt incredibly clever when I was like 20, when I told someone, well, there's only one race, the human race. <laughs> and he very gently and lovingly, but sharply said, that's a lovely sentiment that absolutely disregards the fact that we live in a racialized world in which people are discriminated against because of racial constructs. <laughs> mm -hmm. So go to your corner and think about what you just said. <laughs> Which I did, and I am grateful to him <laughs> for that learning opportunity. Um, so do you have any kind of embarrassing stories that you look back on where you're like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that? Oh, yeah, well, tons. But um, <laughs> one that comes to mind is fresh into college, again, coming from this very liberal town that, um, you know, I grew up with without really much religion and without a lot of friends who were very religious. And that seemed the norm to me. And then coming to the Midwest, where there is a lot more of a culture around religion and, you know, Christianity specifically. But um, I had a conversation with a close friend who's still a close friend, and he was talking about his faith. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but in a couple of words, I just completely dismissed his entire faith and was like, you know, 
Well, that's obviously stupid. (laughs) I just remember like, it was kind of a look of like hurt and shock in his face. Mm -hmm. And I I remember just being like, oh my God, what did I just say? That was so (laughs) appropriate. And look how judgmental I was. And I thought I was this evolved liberal person. Um, And I just dismissed this person's identity. And that really, that one really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And how was it like, what was your experience of working with that? Because I, I encounter when with people when they realize that there's that either doubling down of sort of defensiveness around it, sort of trying to justify well, no, there's a reason why I did, it's fine. You know, I didn't mean it in a bad way. Or the flip side is like, there's this intense guilt that comes and there's almost like seeking absolution from the person that you harmed or the group that you harmed of like, Oh God, I feel so bad, please. Like, instead of sort of doing your own work of self-learning and then I feel like my I you know I don't remember exactly my response in that moment you know I remember more like the shame that came after Mm -hmm. but I I think over time it you know making a lot of mistakes as we all do I really tried to evolve how I respond to them because I do see a lot of people get defensive or justify. And I think it's important to really just acknowledge when you've realized you've said something wrong. And like you said, not not put it on the other person to absolve you um, or, you know, flagellate yourself in front of them. Mm. But say, you know, you know, I realized that was wrong and I'm not going to do that again or say that again. And then, yeah, reflect back on yourself. Um, and you know, there's a difference between saying a word that you didn't realize was offensive, you know, like something like spirit animal where people really maybe have just never taken a second to consider where that comes from. Mm -hmm. And just to stop and say, okay, like, I'm not going to say that anymore because I am now recognizing the roots and the problem with that. Mm -hmm. And something like the example of you know, disregarding someone's entire religion, that requires a little more introspection and what led me to say that, what led me to think that, how can I change my own perspective and understand people who have different ways of seeing the world than I do. That sort of, I mean, that brings back really nicely to this intention versus impact. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about that? And, And maybe also understanding and defining the difference between those two. Right. That's a big thing in the world of social justice. People come with really good intentions and they don't always see that that's not the same as their impact. If you come wanting to uh, help someone, but the way you try and do that really undermines their agency, they're not going to feel helped. Um, They're going to feel undermined. And that is really what matters in the end because you can say to them, oh, but like, I meant to help, but that doesn't change the situation that they're in. You know, you can use language in a way that you're, you're trying to convey one thing, but if somebody understands what you're saying differently, you know, we all have to be accountable for impact as well. In the not-for-profit culture, then, how specifically that sort of plays out in the savior narrative? Because yes. like, there's this thing that I... 
I've really gotten a lot from my Buddhist practice of understanding compassion as an experience of really meeting people where they're at and coming alongside them. That's how it's described by Roshi Joan Halifax specifically. That's like one of her catchphrases, if you will, coming alongside. And there's really the emphasis on understanding that like helping someone can be feeling like you're better than them and you have something to give them. Fixing them implies that they're broken. But serving is actually coming alongside somebody within their own power and empowering them through support. So what have you learned about well, first of all, could you define a savior narrative? Because I think that's something listeners might not be familiar with. They're like talking about language and terms. Savior narratives. You want to define what that means? <laughs> yeah. In nonprofits, it's a it's a very common. Um, you know, if you th- if you think about you know, save the children commercials, you know, with mm-hmm. just a dime a day, you can like save this child, you know, and then somebody can give 10 cents and feel really good about themselves and superior. But you know, what have they actually done? I was reading something about this earlier that um, gave an example of an ad campaign for a nonprofit that showed somebody swiping a credit card, then that motion sort of like cut the bonds of slavery and like, oh my God, to like feed the hungry. And uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously all you're doing is, is swiping your credit card. You're not actually ending slavery. So um, it's, yeah, it's, that is really about the feelings and the needs of the person giving the money rather than the person the money is supposed to help. That's a sort of extreme example, but in a lot of modern nonprofits, the language around that is we're lifting people up, we're giving them power, we're helping them do something that they couldn't do without our help. Mm -hmm. And there's this, the, the them aspect is, is, you know, problematic. It's this very othering idea. And then the idea of like, we as the savior, the nonprofit organization have the power and the answer, and we're going to give it to you. You know, this is how a lot of nonprofits have traditionally communicated their story, you know, and you can see it in viral videos about this person gave their shoes to a home person, you know, and gets like, 10 million views and you can understand the appeal of appeal of that kind of narrative. There's sort of a a feel good, like, Oh, look at this good person. Um, Mm -hmm. so the challenge is how do you not just talk about what you do from a, like a stance of empowering people rather than giving something to them, but also how do you actually do that in practice Mm -hmm. and listen to people about what they need instead of telling them. So you work in the not-for-profit sector mm-hmm. and helping with developing communication for not-for-profits. So what have you learned about shifting those narratives or how to change the narratives so that they are less coming across as like, oh, yes, I'm so wonderfully bestowing all of this grace on you, poor human. <laughs> yes. Um. Well, I think one thing that really helps is having people from the community that you're trying to serve be part of the process and really hearing what they want and what they want to hear and how they want to be communicated with. So, you know, engaging a real range of people in developing these kind of messages, the broader your group of people engaged in this is, you know, the more authentic the voices 
going to be. Um, we, we like to do a thing called persona development, which is, is really complicated and sometimes problematic in itself because it's about coming up with people who are meant to represent an entire group of audience members, people you're trying to reach. But the idea is to um, try and see and understand messages uh, from the point of view of that audience and to really think about them first rather than what are we trying to convey, but you know, what do people want to hear? What do they want to know about us? What would they find helpful? And you know, what, one thing that's, I feel like a really hot topic in the nonprofit communications world or social justice communications is this idea of person first language where, you know, instead of talking about homeless people, you're talking about people experiencing homelessness or, you know, people with a mental illness um, rather than mentally ill people, you know, trying to not have those things define a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot of value behind that because, you know, the way we use those words, if you put homeless first, you know, that is, is defining the word person. But at the same time, it can be a real communications challenge. It makes everything clunkier and longer, which is the opposite of what you learn about good communications. Mm -hmm. But also, if you use a lot of this kind of language that exists in this social justice sphere, when you actually communicate out to people who don't live in that bubble, it can be really confusing. You know, it might be terms that they don't understand or they aren't used to seeing. So these two goals sort of conflict with each other. I just had this experience, uh, experience with a client. We spent a lot of time crafting the wording so that we were being as inclusive as possible and really trying not to alienate anyone and think of this sort of yeah, person-focused language. But um, when we sent it out to some people to review, they said, this feels like it's targeted at a high education level and it's hard mm -hmm. to understand. And so, you know, we have to go back a little bit and rethink, like, what's the most important thing to convey and um, how do we meet people where they are with language? To come back to, like you said early on, you were talking about buzzwords and sort of social justice buzzwords. Yeah. And it's true, like the, the language you use in communication, it's so interesting when there is crossover of a word that's used very differently in different contexts. Can you think of any specific examples of something that within the not-for-profit sector more broadly would be very like social justice specific that just the, the general public would not, like where you've encountered that, where it's just like not received well or understood or any buzzword in, in particular that you have come up against that you've realized are kind of problematic because they just don't communicate clearly what needs to be understood. No, it does exist. I'm having a really hard time thinking of one. That's awesome. <laughs> Actually, I wonder if decolonizing is a really good one to unpack here. <laughs> yeah, I was I was just thinking about that too. Um, <laughs> because uh, that is a buzzword these days. <laughs> it's a buzzword, and you know, often applied in ways that aren't really accurate to what what it means. Um, and I think a lot of people have sort of started just slapping that on to the, the growing list of, you know, it was 
diversity and then it was, you know, diversity and inclusion and then equity. And now people have been like, oh, yeah, and also decolonization without really thinking about what that means. Um, a friend of mine shared a great article called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. It's very uh, academic, so very dense article, but uh, I recommend it. And essentially the, the point of that article is decolonization is not another buzzword for like, you know, let's all get along and hold hands. It's it's about actually undoing colonization and returning things like land to people who it was taken from. Hmm. Some of that sort of literal decolonization work that's being done is um, that's really interesting is with museums. Some museums are actively working to return artifacts to Native people where they were stolen or taken through shady deals. Like Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah, exactly. Um, the guy's the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really is. But yeah, and I think that's to veer off topic a little bit, but I think that's a challenge with like all anti-racism work is in order to actually do the work, you have to be willing to give up something, whether it's power or land. And I think that's one of the hardest things for people to wrap their heads around. You know, I'm trying so hard to be a good person and do the work of equity, you know, why isn't enough? And it's, if you still hold up, all the power haven't, you know, done any of that work of undoing that. It's not really making that kind of change that's needed. I mean, that's like shifting that savior narrative, right? You have to let go of the idea that you are a savior. Mm-hmm. Um, I explore that a lot, actually, around the term privilege, which I feel is a term that we need to start moving away from mm-hmm. for lots of reasons. There's a really good talk by Reverend Angel where they say that they don't like the term privilege because it implies it's something that you should want. And why would you want something that cuts you off from humanity and cuts you off from your ability to see the fullness of other human beings? Then there's another teaching from Zenju Earthland Manuel, uh, and she talks about how there's the attitude that if you think that you need to use your privilege for good, then that still means that you think that you have something that makes you better. (laughs) So yeah, and so what has been both personally and professionally been your experience of letting go of power and times when you've you've done that either for yourself in your personal relationships or you've done that within your job or you see that happening where you work? Something that I try and do personally because I can be someone who likes to talk a lot. So sometimes it's just reminding myself to shut up and, (laughs) you know, listen and let other people speak. That's a sort of small way to do it. Um, But I've also been thinking a lot about, you know, how power is sort of kept among groups of people and, you know, how often in the professional world we do this, this thing called networking and, you know, work building and often our networks tend to look like us. So when we start looking for people to hire, it's like, oh, I know this great person from my network. And that feels like a really natural thing to do. But when your network is made up of people who are similar to you, it makes it really hard to create a diverse workforce. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's out, outside of things like actual bias in hiring and and now I feel like I'm getting away from the question. <laughs> no, not at all. I think I'm, I actually that sort of leads into another 
thing that I would love to hear what your exploration has been around implicit biases and specifically around whiteness and white dominance, considering how often not-for-profits within North America are very white dominated. Yeah, well, I think um, we did we did an, an equity training at my office last year, and uh, we talked about white dominant culture and these ideas that um, that culture values things like urgency and the written word and producing. So in in trying to undo some of that, you know, we still kind of run up against this thing of like, okay, well, like let's write something down about that. Let's come up with a list and let's do that now. So we're, we're addressing these issues now. And so it's in ways that you, you don't really think about how they're related to racism or biases, but you know, they are because they're driven by this white dominant culture. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken like an implicit bias test. I have. They're great. It's super interesting to kind of just think about how you make assumptions about people just in such small ways that you don't notice them and how those have real life consequences of keeping power in the hands of people who've already historically had it. Mm-hmm. And how do you navigate then that? Because there's, you know, intersectionality is so important. <laughs> I'm always working with this, like, nobody is 100% the oppressor and nobody is 100% oppressed. We are all complicit in the impression of others, especially in a capitalist society. And we also basically everyone experiences marginalization for different reasons, for uh, gender and sexual orientation and ability and whether or not you're educated and what class you are and so on and so forth. There's, there's so many different levels. So how have you worked with navigating that within yourself where you're aware of the privileges that you might have being like white socialized and moving through the world as a, a white college educated person, but also being a woman? What's your experience there? Yeah. Well, first, I want to sidetrack for a second and say that that's actually a great example of a word that I hear all the time in the social justice sphere, intersectionality, uh-huh. and that taking it outside that sphere, a lot of people don't know what it means. And, you know, I think you did a really good job of explaining it, so I won't do that again. But um, <laughs> it's a term that I've casually dropped before. And, you know, I think uh, I was talking to my mom and she was like, what, what's that now? Like, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it can be really hard for people who feel like they have suffered and been discriminated against and come up against prejudice to go back to that word that we're trying to move against is uh, the idea of privilege. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's, you know, another argument for moving away from that word is a lot of people they don't feel like they've had privilege, so they have a hard time understanding what that means. And they've had more privilege than someone else in one arena, but not in another. When I'm talking about issues of bias and equity, I do have this voice in my head that's saying, but yeah, like what about all the incidences of sexism or harassment you've experienced as a woman? Or like, what about anti-Semitism, you know, as someone who is ethnically Jewish, you know, there's a rise in Nazism. Doesn't that mean like me, I as a Jewish person have, have some claim to that idea of bias? 
it's the problem of like thinking of it as a binary or, you know, a competition, mm, mm-hmm. the, the oppression Olympics is, um, how some people say, and it really is all the different pieces of your identity come together to create a whole. And when you experience discrimination and bias against multiple aspects of your identity, they're all sort of different types of biases and, you know, they're heightened when they're put together. Yeah, I think it's also it's also noticing the impact living at the intersections, which was an episode that I did previously with somebody named E. West. They did a, a really good conversation about that of understanding that it's like living at the intersections is really noticing the way that those different identities create that one, like you just said, right? It, it yeah. creates one, you know, human beings are super diverse and a human being is super diverse. The example I always use is that I'm an immigrant. I've been an immigrant twice in my life, Mm -hmm. but no one thinks of me as an immigrant. When I lived in the UK, people would say, like, I would actually get that, like, oh, you know, immigrants come over and take our jobs. And I'm like, what, like me? Like, (laughs) I have a job. I'm an immigrant. (laughs) It takes on, I go, not you. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Right. So I understand that the fact that I am white. And that I come from an English-speaking country and then have immigrated to predominantly English-speaking countries makes my experience of being an immigrant not an issue. Right. That is white privilege <laughs> is what it looks like. So, yeah, I can never, like, do some claim of, like, oh, I'm at risk. Like, yeah, I am. I am at risk. The impact is still there. But mm-hmm. anything facing any immigrant population uh, in any country where I am also an immigrant will eventually have an impact on me. Right. It just means it'll take a lot longer. And so my concern shouldn't be self-motivated. It should be from that collective view of like, mm-hmm. like human beings deserve to feel safe yeah. and deserve to be with their families and have those communities protected. Yeah. yeah. So this is the point in the show when I just kind of open it up for you and invite you to offer Anything that you would like to to listen to listeners who are either doing this kind of work or might be starting to embark on this kind of work. So think of it as like an open space, any resources, ideas, thoughts, whatever you want to leave people with. Yeah, well, I... Uh, I was reading this morning from um, the AP uh, Style Guide. It just released its latest edition and has a bunch of new guidelines about how to talk about, or how to, I guess not how to talk about, but how to use grammar-wise terms related to race, such mm. as don't put a hyphen in Asian American or African American with the idea that it might make it seem like that person is not fully American or guidelines about Latino or Latina instead of um, Hispanic or um, guidelines for using the term Latinx. And I don't think, you know, the AP style guide is the be all and end all of this. What um, is the AP style guide for listeners who might not know? Oh, sorry, that's my my communications person bias. Um, <laughs> it is a, a book of essentially the grammar and word use guidelines, essentially to, to standardize how we use words, how to write a date, you know, where to put the comma, how to use quotation marks. And for grammar geeks like me, um, it can become something of a sacred text to um, say, you know, there is a right way to use a semicolon. Um, So, you know, it's interesting to see how its guidelines evolve, and especially when they come to this 
really tricky and nebulous idea of race and identity. All that to say, um, the way we use language matters. And I think a, a, a golden rule of communications is to think about your audience. So I think that's really something to keep in mind when you're communicating in any way. Think about who you're trying to communicate with and try and understand how your words have impact and not just intention. I met Sarah at a workshop run by Natasha Marin in Seattle called Storytelling Strategies for Dismantling Racism, which is all about exploring social narratives and how shifting social narratives is a key part of addressing white supremacy. To learn more about these workshops, which are really incredible, you can check out Non-White Works on Facebook and look at the events listed there. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to find out more about everything that I do in the world to read my blog, buy a book, and check out my art gallery. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support my work and practice. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make this the focus of my life. Immense appreciation goes to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Minita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Malkern, Michelle Puckett, and Sierra Love. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of More Music. 